the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Planted. Uh, this is our, th- oh wow, what is it? I think this is our 33rd episode. It's our 32nd or 33rd episode. I've got to check it out. Time goes by so fast. Um, but today we have Celia Carter from Roshi. Um, I'm really excited to have her on today. She is the co-founder and CEO of Roshi. Roshi is a supply chain management and compliance platform built for cannabis. Uh, She's leveraging her experience in and the sophistication of supply chain solutions for FDA regulated products of cannabis. Um, Celia is one of those people who has come from healthcare into the cannabis space. She spent six plus years as the director of operations at Bracket Global, where she oversaw the clinical trial supply chain, logistics and patient management technology business units, global operations. In her role, she prepared the business unit operationally and financially for acquisition by Medco Health Solutions. Throughout her 15 plus year career, Celia has built strategic partnerships between life science and technology companies, most recently as part of a corporate development and partnerships team at Google X Life Sciences and previously at Global Head Healthcare Technologies and Innovation and Innovation Office at Genentech. She holds a BA degree from UC California, Berkeley, and an MBA at UC Berkeley Haas School of Business. I just actually did a part of as part of a lecture series last fall with the MBA students and they were wonderful. Welcome. I'm so glad to have you here, Thank Celia. You. Thanks so, for having me. Yes. Yeah. Uh, there's a big, rich culture of cannabis at, at Berkeley and Berkeley Haas that I've been tied to. So it's been a great support network, um, and they're they're doing great things out of there. Yeah, I really have been loving what they've been doing with um, the series that they just have for the MBA students, and then all the work that the students have done on SheCan. I think that that's it's it's a great rich thing for curriculum but it also really prepares people for if they're interested in getting into cannabis out of school to kind of wet their feet in the space yes absolutely and that's something that you know at least when when i was there trying to say hey aren't you guys interested in cannabis doesn't anybody want to start a business you know it was still sort of um in the early days so it's great to see that come full circle yeah it's really cool and i was looking at your bio and i was noticing genentech and stuff like that i don't i my mom is uh well she's since retired but She's a cancer researcher, so she did a lot of work with Genentech and some of the other biotech companies. And it, I'm, I'm finding that it's fascinating, too, how some of the companies are starting to look at uh, some of the cannabinoids and, like, in synthesized cannabinoids in particular. Um, I'm excited to see what comes out of that, but I'm also hoping that everybody kind of goes back to full-spectrum plant-based cannabinoid science. <laughs> Yeah, we definitely, you know, we have a lot, a lot to turn, learn here. I, I, you know, mentioned that I, I come from a background in, in clinical research and patient engagement technologies. And, you know, one key piece of that is starting to understand personalized medicine, right? So that's a hot topic when we think about uh, what's happening in clinical research, you know, what are the different, uh, you know, uh, triggers and, you know, for a particular person's biology. And I think, you know, that's something that I'm super interested in when we start looking at cannabis is, you know, there's so much rich data out there around patient-reported outcomes uh, that we just really haven't collected yet. Yeah, yeah. There's That's one thing that I've noticed. Like, research is a wonderful thing. We have all these stories from patients about their experiences as well. Like, um... Like when people come to my classes, I always tell them, you know, you can look at research, you can read a great educational text on cannabis, you can come to my classes, but what you're getting is a report back on how the majority of human beings respond to cannabis, and we're we're walking right. chemistry experiments, um, and I'm really excited to see like when we look at before when there weren't as many people using cannabis and we weren't getting as many reports back because people were a little bit more private about their impressions, we would see these anomalies that would pop up from time to time, like sensitivities to CBD. And we're just like, oh, well, that's, you know, one one in a great while. But as we pick up and more people are starting to use it, we're finding that some of these anomalies, maybe it may be a smaller portion of the population, but it's more than we thought it was because more people are using it and reporting back. 
Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, the key for the cannabis industry is to start. I know that there's companies looking at capturing, you know, customer feedback through different online uh, e-commerce solutions. But but really, you know, I'm interested in looking at uh, validated scientific scales when it comes to collecting this patient information. And so if you look at, you know, the execution of clinical trial clinical trials and trying to relate some of those data points back to efficacy, um, the ways that we actually construct surveys and feedback from people, you know, really influences the scientific rigor around that data. Yeah. Um, so that's, yeah. That, that's, that's for sure. As when I, um, when I went to school, I, I did um, training in statistics and, and research methodologies and um, it was really interesting to dig in, and and I, uh, I I have to admit I came from a hippie college. <laughs> I came from <laughs> the California Institute of Integral Studies, so we also talked about like the decolonization of research as well, which was I thought was right. a, a really interesting point because we have for so long seen research through a certain lens, and I'm really excited to see as we start to to deepen our and decolonize our methodologies, how, what that's going to look like. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, kind of circling back for, you know, me getting into this industry and a bit, you know, about Roshi, I mean, the patient driven aspect is really, you know, how Roshi came to be. Um, so, you know, just, a, I guess a bit about that, that entry, um, you know, one of our co-founders, um, her husband's actually the founder of Apothecarium. I know that you know that. Oh, yeah. Um, and, um, you know, it was there that, you know, working with him and understanding kind of those, those patient interactions is, you know, getting those oncology patients that would come into the Apothecarium in the 215 days and, um, you know, get guided towards certain products, um, you know, depend on them and then have uh, stocking issues, right? So they would come in, they tried, you know, an 18 to 1 pen for the first time or something like that, come back in for that, and it wasn't there, right? And so that's really the impetus for how are we going to better the supply chain to ensure that, you know, those medications are there and that resupplies, you know, ahead of the curve. Yeah, it's it's really essential that we have that because not only do they need it, but it's also it's also very emotional, especially when you're going through something to have something that you count on not being available. Right, right. So yeah, so that's kind of you know what what Roshi is all about in terms of trying to to solve those stock gaps. So I want to back it up pre Roshi. I always like to ask my guests yeah. what what your first cannabis experience was like. Sure. So I mean, I feel like my first. Let's just talk more about exposure to cannabis. Um, totally outing my brother, but if anybody knows him, <laughs> that's totally okay. Um, you know, I was probably in like seventh grade, and he was maybe, he's two years older than me, so he's maybe a freshman in high school. And he and his friends used to smoke weed in the basement, and it would come right up through the vents in my room. <laughs> so, that's my first, you know. Uh, personal, you know, exposure. Um, so it wasn't something that I was, um, you know, doing myself at that time. Uh, but that's kind of like, you know, he sort of uh, exposed me to to the powers of that smell, right, coming through the vents. Um, and, you know, it wasn't for a couple of years later until I would actually, um, you know, start to use cannabis. And over time, I've actually become one of the, um, you know, one of the, the Cali sober folks. So um, being of Asian descent, I'm actually, you know, I've got that special allergic reaction to alcohol. Oh, that's um, no fun. Yeah. So, you know, quickly finding through high school, through college um, and all that time that, you know, we all have our, our ways um, and cannabis just sits, you know, much better with my biology than, than alcohol does. Yeah. I, I really, I like it much more too. I, um, I'll have like, we, we enjoy wine from time to time, but when I was going through chemo, you know, you don't really, I, it's not that I couldn't drink, but you don't have any desire to because you already feel kind of gross. And then afterwards, mm -hmm. I just found that using cannabis, I just, I felt better. Like there's, I don't really have a need for getting like a little loose with alcohol because the next day I just feel a little dehydrated, a little tired, and at my age, water retention. Like, my mother told me that was going to happen eventually, <laughs> and then it yeah. did. 
you know. Well, how did you how did you decide after, you know, having a, a rich career in biotech to do the switch to cannabis? Yeah, so that was, you know, I had went back to, so I was at Genentech for about seven years in digital health and technology. Um, I had just landed a new, I went back to school and got my MBA um, part-time while I was uh, working at Genentech and was ready to kind of move on to something new after being there for, for quite some time. And so I probably got what every MBA's dream is, is a corporate development job at, you know, Google Life Science. <laughs> um, a lot of my classmates would have died for that, that type of job. And I, you know, dove into it for about four months. And it was then that uh, my co-founder Heidi and my co-founder Jason tapped me on the shoulder and said, you know, we really want to bring what we did for pharma to the cannabis industry. Uh, do you want to be a part of this? And I, you know, had the entrepreneurial itch. I went back to school to focus on entrepreneurship. And so it was really the, the perfect opportunity to tie in my background in supply chain for pharmaceuticals, um, uh, an interest in the cannabis industry and this entrepreneurial nature altogether. And so I just, you know, decided I didn't moonlight. I sort of just decided let's make this happen and went uh, full steam ahead in uh, the beginning of 2018 is when we sort of started to put the company together. Well, that's awesome. It, it's funny. It's like we were talking for a brief moment before we we started to record, and I was mentioning to you that when I when I saw that, and I knew I knew Heidi was working on on this software, but I hadn't really like thought about it until you and I were going to be talking, and um, I just remember like when we were you know, looking at legalization happening and people were nervous about it and thinking that it would just be an opportunity for people to, it's amazing how people always have like the worst case scenario, like people will just not do anything and smoke lots of yep. weed. And I was like, you don't understand, like legitimizing this industry brings so many jobs and skills to the table. And one of the things I would always say is, do you know how many young people are going to be interested in supply chain management now and what a good thing that yeah. is? <laughs> exactly. No, I mean, I think, you know, I, I, I do a lot of panels of MBA students and, you know, getting them excited about the opportunities careers. I think there's kind of twofold that's, that's unraveling in the industry. One is that all the traditional jobs, whether it be in technology or CPG or, you know, depending on what your or retail um, you know, a lot of those jobs that are sort of common jobs that we understand, um, you know, can be applied to the, to the cannabis industry. And we're seeing lots of big, you know, um, C-suite uh, hires coming from, you know, Fortune 500 companies into the cannabis space. But I also think it sort of spurred these roles that we didn't even imagine, right? So when I think about my own career trajectory and getting into digital health, digital health wasn't a thing when I graduated, you know, from college, you know, in like 2000, you know, so it wasn't, it didn't evolve into kind of a career path and in, in being niche until then. And I see the same thing happening in cannabis. You know, you look at compliance and metrics. I mean, there's certainly, um, you know, compliance at other organizations, but it's a different lens here. You know, being a metric specialist is, and an inventory manager for cannabis is actually a career path. It is. And you almost have to be part wizard <laughs> to navigate it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So it's not about just even, you know, expanding the roles that we already know, but it's, you know, creating new niche jobs that didn't exist before. Yeah. I, I think that that's really exciting. And, and I, and, you know, not only is it creating new jobs, but I love the fact that, it's engaging people because one of the things that I found is like if you find somebody who loves what they're working with and what they're doing, there's constant growth. You have you have somebody who's always looking to innovate because engagement is key, right? I just yeah, it's it's exciting, and I and I think that you know when you think about like how many jobs have been created by the cannabis industry and are still yet to be created, I just. I just really hope that like, from a policy standpoint, we're able to start straightening some things out so that it's much more sustainable and we can even we can grow even more. Yeah, certainly. And I think, you know, it's the combination, um, like I mentioned, of just 
getting that more exposure through schools and, you know, we're putting an academic lens on it. Um, we're also, you know, the scientific aspects and, and then there's just corporate, you know, and all of those things kind of help, um, you know, normalize cannabis, so to speak, or, or open it up to, um, you know, people to understand that it could be a career choice. Right, right. And I think, too, when... No, because we do have legacy operators and we have people who are in this because they really, you know, enjoy cannabis and they're passionate about that. Um, but I think we can, this is a great opportunity for us to learn how to do business in a different way. Much how, and, I've, and I, I know I've said this dozens of times, much how the tech industry changed the way we did business outside of tech. I think that we can be looking at cannabis to change the way we do business even like from a perspective of being more, how would you say, compassionate capitalism. So, you know, yeah. there's there's abundance on all sides and we can actually use this. Not that it's a panacea or a Band-Aid for all of our, our social woes, but it could definitely support our communities. And we can look at just how we can give back to our communities and, and support them and in turn that creates a healthy industry too. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, the, I know that, you know, from my exposure, at least from the, the early days, you know, you saw a lot of those uh, legacy operators, um, you know, having philanthropic objectives, you know, weave into their missions. Right. And so being able to con continue to maintain those. And I think, you know, it's a good point. One of the, the, our ethos, at least as a, as a business has been, you know, large-scale ERP supply chain management solutions can be $250,000 plus to build. And so by nature, you know, you're making those available to those with loads of access to capital. Um, and so, you know, we've been of the thought that because our platform is SaaS-based, um, you know, we are giving, you know, a democratic or democratizing access to powerful software. It doesn't have to be $250,000, but we do believe that having a technology solution will give smaller brands and businesses the infrastructure they need to actually compete with those that do have the $250,000 systems. That's, that's very important because the cost of entrance to this industry has become crazy. And that's, that's also why we're seeing like just equity programs need so much more support and a product like yours could really help equity operators get a leg up. Um, yep. You want to, let's talk about your product more. Would you, would you describe what Roshi is and, 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 and you've talked a little bit about why the three of you thought to put it together, but if we could do a little bit more in depth on that. Yeah, absolutely. So Roshi is an inventory management compliance platform at the core. And so those are really our core competencies when you look at, you know, where we're coming from and managing a regulated supply chain um, as well, you know, in a compliant way. And so we're really fusing those two components together. Um, we started our company focused on manufacturing and distribution. And the reason why is because we felt as though, um, you know, the counts of inventory at the retail location we're only as good as what was happening downstream in the supply chain, right? So if a retail store says, we need more of this, that's great, but is everything downstream in place so that we can, you know, provide that resupply? So currently our, our platform is focused on manufacturing and distribution. Um, we recently actually launched our cultivation module. So now we are supporting all three verticals, um, you know, pre-retail on, on our platform. So at the core, you know, brands, uh, manufacturers, distributors, cultivators are using our platform to track their operations, track all the data related to it, um, as well as, you know, manage all of their metric compliance and state, regulator, state regulatory requirements. Um, what I'm most excited about is, you know, how we're differentiating ourselves. I think you look at other, you know, seed to sale providers are kind of checking that metric box and, you know, the going back to why did we start this, we're really looking at how do we connect this fragmented supply chain and automate shipments between brands and retailers. And so that's really, you know, the next step of evolution from our platform. That's, that's really important. How does that, how does that work with the point of sale in retail establishments or, or does that? Yeah, it does. Well, it does and it does. So, um, you know, 
all these retail retailers are using different point of sale so, solutions. And so, you know, as a brand, in order to get data back with respect to your particular brand, you know, you need to be able to tap into those point of sale solutions. Um, we're currently in a state where we have the ability to also um, look at, you know, APIs that hold a lot of that data. Um, so that's, you know, the different metrics, state regulatory systems. Um, and so that's exactly what we're, we're doing. We are looking at retail velocity information real time, um, looking at uh, tying that back directly to a brand that's on our platform uh, to establish when they're actually running out. So a lot of that is opening things up from a retail perspective to say, I'm willing to share these things with my brand in terms of, you know, how fast their SKU is selling so that I can better my supply chain with them. And, you know, we're seeing that happen with retailers. I think in the past, everybody's been like, no, I don't want to show you my data. Um, but really, you know, isolating it to say, um, you know, for example, I'll say Kikoko, you know, they're on our platform. And so, you know, it can be that the retail location says, I already know kind of, you know, how much I need. I want to get on auto ordering with Kikoko and they're on the Roshi platform and we can do that. That's awesome. I, I I feel like, you know, Kikoko is a really great example. I, I love Amanda. Um, and they're a really great example of like a professionally run cannabis company. Like they, they just really saw things ahead of time, what they needed to do to keep up to speed. Um, when we're looking at systems like metric, I've been hearing more about certain states not actually wanting to work with the software because of some of the issues that they've seen us encountering, like in states like where we are in California. Um, what, what have you noticed about that? And, and, and I'm going to preface it with this is, this is not going to be my knocking of metric, although I see a lot yeah, of people yeah. loving doing that. <laughs> There's enough forums for that. We don't, we don't need to take over the podcast. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's definitely been a challenge. It goes through through peaks and valleys. I mean, you look at other so the benefits of our platform go beyond metric, right? We certainly do that. Um, and the the actual you know behind the scenes of what metrics trying to achieve from a traceability perspective um, can be understood, right? So I don't think that like the idea of track and trace or having that level of traceability is something that people can't get behind. Um, one thing that's very unique, though, in this industry, when you look at others that are evolving, is that most of those systems, like when you look at the pharmaceutical, it's not that you're tying into a centralized system every time you're transacting. Really, what you have is you have your internal controls such that you could be audited and you have and can demonstrate the traceability. Right. And so, um, you know, I'm not for or against, actually, you know, like centralization, but um if you look at other industries, not everybody has, you know, the single provider that everybody's, you know, obviously cannabis is nuanced, but, you know, that's not how it works in other industries. Like even look at nutraceuticals. It's not like everybody, you know, taps into single thing. It's just that we all have traceability mechanisms built into our organization. Auditors can see that we have it and it's okay if it's not the same system. Yeah. it It's interesting to look at some of the things that we have in cannabis that are unique to the industry and you know some of them seem to go a little overboard but then some of them almost seem <laughs> like you know maybe there's a middle ground because you know a lot of people say mm -hmm. well, we don't have to do this in other industries well in some cases I think other industries almost need to step up their game a little bit but maybe not go as far as We've had to, yeah. you know. Right. Um, well, we always say, like, do I know where that tomato came from in my tomato soup, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. Because, you know, I mean, even with, like, the testing and everything that we have to do, I mean, it's more stringent than what we have to do for organic produce. Right. Right. Uh, and I, I like the way you phrase that, though, because is it really the wrong thing? No, it's the right thing to be testing cannabis products, you know? Yeah. So, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 such a good thing to be able to do it. It it would just be really nice if we could have more of a middle ground and have it so that it wasn't because I know like when we got into legalization and the prices of cannabis went way up, people were really upset. And they were the first thing they wanted to do was blame the dispensary and then the second thing they wanted to do was blame the products. And what we've really had to do is like 
lay it out for people because you know it's just a it's just a knee-jerk reaction it's emotional reaction which is totally understandable but explaining to them everything that's baked into the price of that product it's like no it's not just the manufacturing of the product it's paying for testing it's paying for you know everything that they had to do to be able to establish their business all the environmental testing and everything the licensing um our right. our very expensive packaging and then that lovely excise tax <laughs> <laughs> right yeah and so at the end of the day all the you know mouths that are fed along the way right right <laughs> so the end, it's, yeah it's not it's not a huge margin business and yeah no i definitely it is interesting to talk to and i'm sure you did from you know your your experience on retail is like talking to people from the outside who just really don't see it that way right right <laughs> don't understand like all the back end to it when it's like all I know is I went in for like one thing and I came out with a seventy-five dollar bill. You know, that's it. Well, I always joke that we, you know, I, when I when I used to teach my cannabis classes at City, I was like, I should add another module called Economics and Civics for Stoners. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let's really deconstruct yeah. why this is the way it is. Um, yeah. A few weeks ago, I was in the Americans for Safe Access meeting, and we were discussing the MORE Act. And one of the things that I found really interesting is, you know, well, you know, when I when I travel and lecture throughout the states, you know, especially in areas where they're still putting together their policies, I've noticed that policy isn't necessarily based on fact; it's based on state culture which is very strong and very rich, you know, that's, that's a reality, and also stigma. Um, and mm-hmm. when we're looking at the MORE Act, one of the things that I've noticed is that a lot of the language, even though we're getting support from members of the Senate and the House, we're also looking at language that's still reflecting a lot of the stigma. For example, and I thought that this was interesting from a supply chain management perspective, uh, one of the things that I noticed was you know, of course, there's going to be federal taxation. Um, that's a mm-hmm. given. But products that may have been stolen from um, a business, unless they can prove beyond a benefit of the doubt that it wasn't due to negligence from the ownership or the staff, they're still on the hook for taxes for that lost product. Interesting. interesting. I thought that was yeah. really interesting. And I'm just wondering, like, what what you've been what what your thoughts are on on just like the differences between that and other industries and I I'm sorry I might be putting you on the spot a little bit <laughs> <laughs> but um like what 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 would you what would you say to that um what are what are your thoughts about um just kind of just how do you think that we're going to start seeing changes with how business leaders in the industry are being treated around this? Or do you think that we have a ways to go before we're not treated like the corner drug dealers that are trying to get out of paying our taxes? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the the key is kind of these uh, bigger initiatives or, you know, government acts that kind of open doors, right? So when you think about like banking access and what does that automatically legitimize for people? So I do think that there's a big policy aspect in terms of influencing how everybody else thinks about the industry. Um, You know, for some reason, as soon as that (laughs) becomes reality, everybody's on board, right? (laughs) Or like we have to, um, you know, have that government act. I also, I think we're a ways away though. Um, I think what's difficult for me, even as a business owner, selling to these operators is that our our operator base is so diverse. And so just some things that you were even saying around, you know, the taxes and what kind of margins people are actually holding, um, there's so much more that goes into that, right? So you have like a standalone operator who um, is only doing manufacturing in their brand, Versus somebody who's vertically integrated and what does that mean for their supply chain, how they can move money throughout their organization effectively and and things like that. I think we're just we're kind of speaking to when we say like cannabis operators and people who are license holders, it's just it's so different. (laughs) And so I always like to call that out 
it, it presents interesting challenges for my side when we're selling to, you know, a mom and pop shop versus, you know, a large MSO. Yeah. Yeah, that is true. And then there's just people who want to be working in the industry, but they can't even deal with all of that. And so they end up going and working in the legacy market. And that's, you know, right. I just saw this article the other day that was like, you know, will legalization, you know, get, you know, impact the legacy market? You know, and they think that they're talking about it going away. And I'm like, absolutely, it's going to affect it. But it doesn't mean it's going to go away, as we've seen in California, because, you know, when we were looking at policies pre-legalization, I was, you know, talking to people and saying, why are we reinventing the wheel? Why aren't we looking at what other states are doing and what's worked and what hasn't? And every state reinvents the wheel, which creates this really awkward time where more people start going back to the legacy market. And there's a lot of really talented people involved in it, but wouldn't it be wonderful if we could actually give them the opportunity to not have to work in the shadows? Yeah, exactly. And it's it's a pretty healthy market, you know? It's yeah. not small. No. Uh, and, you know, little levers and policy really can influence that decision, right? So every little, um, the way that things are structured, people will construct and, um, you know, it's, it, it makes it just non-advantageous to be here. Yeah, it does. And we had had conversations when we were first talking about equity programs. Um, and one of the things, and, mm-hmm. and I know it seems very simplistic and idealistic, but I was like, you know, how about when somebody gets busted for selling without a permit or license that we give them a leaflet that shows them how to go legit? You know, there's there's just yeah. like let's let's support people instead of creating this friction and and furthering the stigma. Uh, but you know, yeah. even when we're looking at like non-plant touching businesses in the cannabis space, there are so many issues. Like, for example, I you know I'm a I'm a educator, and you know when I teach at colleges and universities, I have to have professional liability insurance. You know, I have to show right. that to them. Um, and like just just the other year, my carrier told me that, you know, I was no longer going to be able to have the same insurance that I was. They dropped me because I'm a cannabis educator, even though I don't sell the plant. There are no there's no plant yeah. touching during my classes. Have you experienced any sort of challenges around that just as a business? Oh, certainly. And I think, you know, coming in, I think that's what, you know, one of the most difficult things whether well there's twofold one is you know i went to business school but they don't actually teach you how to like start out and certainly not how to navigate you know the cannabis situation um but a lot of it is um which is which makes it difficult to enter the space is that you have to do so much research on yourself you know there's no there's no handbook for how to go about these things and you know coming from outside the industry and entering in i was like i don't know what i you know, <laughs> how do I navigate this? What What is allowed? When should, you know, who should I go to? Do I need specialized insurance or can I just go to any insurance broker? You know, so a lot of those questions have, have come up. I think things have changed over time, um, even just in the last, you know, three years. But certainly some of the same, you know, banking challenges, insurance challenges uh, came up for us as well, you know, to say, hey, I don't, we don't actually touch the plant. You know, and because, you know, like, like you were saying, life insurance becomes an issue because they're like, you know, are you handling lots of cash and people are going to want to kill you and, you know, all of that. So. Yeah, it's it's <clears throat> I think it's really interesting just the assumptions that are made. And I think I, I well, one of the things like going back to, you know, my my stoner civics 101 class <laughs> that I'd <laughs> like to have as one of the things that I've been really trying to do with people throughout you know my career in cannabis but especially this year I've been really wanting to have more conversations and really push this is I think one of the things when we're looking at cannabis policy and things evening out and having us actually be treated like legitimate businesses is is pressure from the public um Mm -hmm. you know when we when people get frustrated about you know how things are looking I always say you know you're not you're not powerless in this you have a voice you know, our policymakers and people who depend on our votes to actually keep their jobs, it's time for us to step up as citizens and let them know that, you know, 
We're responsible. We have jobs. We take part in society. We pay our taxes. We use cannabis and we vote. Yep. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> Contributing <laughs> members of society, right? Exactly. Because I really feel like a lot of, in a lot of ways, these policies are made because they feel like the people that they impact the most won't care because we're too busy just hanging out at home, smoking a bowl, eating flaming hot Cheetos. Yeah. I mean, we've, we've, I think that at this point we know how much, you know, lobbying and advocacy, <laughs> how much there actually is going on in the cannabis industry and, you know, really attune, in tune. But I, you know, I am just, I continue to be just, um, you know, not surprised, but just impressed by, you know, the caliber of the business people that are running these cannabis businesses through um, all of the challenges, right? So mm-hmm. I kind of think about this when I think about, being a woman in leadership. So being a woman in leadership, they're like, you have to be 10 times better than the guy next to you. You do. Right. Like you actually, and you are, so you're like a rock star and you're 10 times better. And I kind of think about that when you think about cannabis business, like they don't have banking, insurance is hard. They don't know, you know, the regulations and kind of just all of that. Like if you have all of those battle scars imagine just running a company without any of that (laughs) wow wouldn't that be nice (laughs) yeah so like how successful and impactful would some of these leaders you know be outside of this industry in itself so yeah yeah and and without some of these parameters that are just creating more issues than they are actually helping like how many more people we'd be able to employ and how much more we'd be able to grow our businesses if we didn't have these things holding us back that don't hold back other industries. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, um, God, there was something I was, what was I going to ask you? We were talking about that. Well, when you were looking at the space and when you're looking at like the sphere that, that you're working in, what are what are some things that you've noticed that you your hope you'd like to change and and what would well how would you like to change them? Yeah, so I mean, I think you know just some of the things. Of course, I'm looking at just you know a technology lens at least for for the first pass here. Um, you know, one of the things that I see early, I saw early, and I continue to see, although it's hopefully changing a bit. And I mentioned this earlier, is just because this industry is not especially in the cannabis space or tech space is not yet well-defined. I think a lot of us tech companies and I'll include myself are still figuring out, um, you know, the, the landscape of technology. And so, you know, probably yourself, since you're not, you know, knee deep in the technology, the same way. It's like, Oh, I heard about Dutchie. Oh, I heard about this company, this company. It's like, how does that all fit into the, cannabis technology architecture, you know, what does that look like? Mm -hmm. And so the lanes aren't, aren't established quite yet. So one company who's doing seed to sale, their ultimate goal may actually be to be a marketplace and compete with LeafLink, but they're not yet. Right. And so there's still kind of an evolution happening. Um, If you look at clinical trial execution in the digital health space, it's, it's growing, but it started to form like, what kind of company are you? You know, are you medication adherence? Are you patient education? Like, what are you going after in terms of your solution? And so what that establishes is more best-in-class solutions that integrate into kind of an overall technology ecosystem versus these jack-of-all-trades. And so I see a lot of companies getting forced in the cannabis space into solving every problem because they don't know where to stop. Um, and a lot of that is driven by the fact that um, operators are currently looking for one-stop shops versus what would the world look like with integrated solutions that were best in class put mm. together. Yeah. So that's yeah. something I want to happen. I want to play nice with other technology providers that do other things that could utilize my data for a good experience for our shared customer um, versus me trying to do everything, you know, and displace every other type of technology out there. Right. And when you're mentioning data, you and you were talking earlier about people not wanting to let go of their data because, you know, it's money. Um, yeah. But, you know, that's, that's one of the things that I've always been curious about because we get, you know, we have these data groups in cannabis that put out all these reports about trends and different things. Yeah. 
how and and I've always just kind of looked at it kind of with a side eye because I'm like, yeah, but how many people are really letting loose their data so you're able to look at what they're doing? Like how yeah. how accurate are these reports? And and what are you seeing as far as like people loosening up and actually letting their data show so that as an industry we can strengthen ourselves and better what we do? Yeah, so I don't know tons and tons about the sources of different data. Everybody's like, oh, this is why my data is better, right? There's a couple like um, those macro, you know, subscriptions that you can get. Mm -hmm. So I I can't speak too much to that accuracy. I do know that at least, you know, probably been a good 18 months when I went to an operator and they're like, yeah, that's not how much money I made this month at all. (laughs) You know, (laughs) when they looked at that, looked at that report. So, you know, there, you know, I know that there are, are issues with it. Um, I think that early on there was some jaded, there's some jaded operators on people that were really about a data play, you know? And so I think everybody's super, have been super on edge about like, Oh, you just want my data. And it's like, what do I want to use your data for? You know, um, we've always been from day one because we knew, we knew about the sensitivity. We're like, you own your data. We don't own your data. You know, that's very clear. Um, what everybody to companies like mine are interested are rolling up macro level de-identified data, right? And that's, um, we're not trying to capture data of a certain, let's say extractor because they have some proprietary IP, which, you know, we have contracts with them that we could never share anyway, um, that we want to share with everybody this like proprietary way that they do extraction. That's not the objective. We don't want to use it at all. I think what people are trying to understand is across, you know, our 500 customers, um, when using CO2, we see this versus when butane, we see this, you know, and kind of making completely de-identified generalizations about, you know, whether it's manufacturing operations or, or otherwise. And so, Maybe I'm only speaking for myself. I feel like I'm so good hearted in like the direction that we're trying to go with it. Um, but I think, you know, there's there's just a fear. But I don't think that anybody's data standalone is like all that valuable until you get a lot of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, first, I want to thank you for being a good player in that, because you know, there are people who do like to, you know, take data and manipulate it and do different things with it. I mean, we've even seen like yeah. with like genetics, with like the whole Phylos debacle and everything, that was just a total mess. Um, but when we're looking at things like this, like, do you think that, how would I say this? Do you think that a lot of this, because sh- what I was wondering is the shift because we were very wild west, especially in the 215 days leading up to legalization. Yep. Everybody was kind of an island onto themselves. And, you know, it's, it's very much like low key, um, you know, kind of like snitches get stitches uh, <laughs> kind of thing. Um, but now that we're having people who are coming in from large companies who understand like what's going on with that data and why it's so important to share it. Um, do you think that we're getting a lot more openness because we are having professionals come in who understand the gravity of it and also the parameters around sharing data? Yeah. And, and yeah, I do. I see it. I definitely see a big change since, you know, 2018 when we were doing discovery visits and starting to understand. Um, I mean, keep in mind, right. As you know, most of these operators that we were going to visit in 2018, which was even like metric wasn't even live yet and we weren't in the rec, you know, true rec market, um, they didn't want to write anything down. There's no, you didn't want a paper trail. You, know? yeah. like, you didn't want a paper trail. You didn't want a digital trail for certain um, of all the inventory you have and everything, right? So for us coming in even, you know, now we're talking three years ago, um, sharing data was like, you know, Number one, I don't want anybody to have this <laughs> record of what I'm doing. And now all of a sudden I have to put every single transaction I'm doing in here. Um, so that's kind of, you know, people were coming from a very protected state. And then when you're dealing with products, I think there's a feeling that the product is what you're selling. So that's your IP. And so we get into those conversations a lot of, you know, part of our process, of course, is to configure extraction and production workflows. Um, and recipes. And so we hold a lot of 
IT of, you know, brands out there. And so getting them behind, like, no, we can't do anything with this and comfort and that there's language contractually to make them feel comfortable with that um, is something, you know, we're still, we still have to have a conversation on all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I can only imagine, especially because back when things were wild west, there were a lot of people who ended up getting double crossed on, you know, their, their trade secrets and things like that because exactly yeah. yeah i heard a lot of people saying i've seen my product <laughs> by something else in a bigger brand you know right well and that's one of the great things about regulation legalization is that there will be more protections around that yeah yeah absolutely and you know yeah protections especially for the smaller players because i think that's when it becomes difficult to defend yeah and when we're talking about smaller players what do you with all the companies that you're working with and the way policy is moving, what do you think that there's room for for MSOs and and small players like and especially when we're looking at like smaller dispensaries or maybe even like small artisan growers because it would be a shame to see them go away. There's there's such a rich part of of our work. Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest challenge is going to be working out the economics. Um, like I mentioned earlier, when you have your supply chain locked in and, you know, the cost and the way the money is flowing is only through your own organization, I think that's going to be the biggest question is, you know, what kind of capital constraints and margins can smaller businesses withstand? I think you look at California from a consumer market, I think, um, you know, I, I still think that there's a big market for, you know, smaller operators, small batch, et cetera. Um, that's just that's just who we are, right? In Northern California, at least. So mm-hmm. um, I think that'll be be quite some time. It's just can it economically work out? Um, you know, that's why we're trying to support smaller operators on our platform. Um, and the big key there is that if it doesn't work out, the companies that you know may get acquired, if that's the ultimate exit for some of these smaller operators, is having you know your infrastructure and data really tight. Yeah. And so that's kind of some of the things we tell them. So not only does it help you operate against these large players by having some infrastructure behind your business, but you become a much better target if acquisition is your end goal Um, because your financials are all lined up. They know your inventory. They can see your sales history. You know, it's like wrapping up a a package for them to look at. Yeah. Due diligence is daunting no matter what industry you're in. Right. It's, it sure is a shock for, for people who have been, you know, making sure that there is no paper trail. Yeah, exactly. When we're, we're looking at the industry, what are, what are, what are you seeing? What, what are you, your hypothesis for the future with our models? And, and what do you hope to see? Yeah, I mean, so I, I definitely hope to see, you know, the opening, the eventual long-term opening towards, um, you know, commerce state to state, you know, we're thinking in the long term when it comes to that, especially when we're thinking about, you know, automating resupply, that doesn't happen just within one state. So you can take, you know, an entity entity like Apothecarium who has locations in, you know, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, as well as California. Um, and once you're able to start manufacturing at a centralized hub, you know, supplying different distribution depots and then resupplying your retailers via those, uh, you know, depots, you've really unlocked that, that automation across your own entities. So I, you know, I'm, I'm excited and looking forward to, you know, the evolution of that. Do you, do you think that there will be more companies with like, especially like dispensaries with multiple locations that will start, you know, doing, having their own distribution licenses to make that kind of movement more possible? Yeah, a lot of them are, um, certainly, but at the same time, it depends on size. You know, you look at California. When we first started in 2018 in California, which was a market that needed, you know, that requires distribution, so not all, not all in, you know, markets do, um, or having it, that, that separate entity license, um, most operators had a distribution license, and that was really for ease of move, like you were saying, um, and it was also um, – you know, just because the industry really hadn't set up a really solid infrastructure for distribution, right? So there were no good distributors yet, really. <laughs> right. Um, 
And so I think I'm, I'm definitely in the last, you know, let's say six to 12 months starting to see a shift towards larger distributors um, because the, the economies of scale just make much more sense than having your own vehicles and insurance and technology platforms and all of that. So, I mean, I do think in markets that it makes sense for, we're going to move much more towards um, actually more centralized um, distribution likely to, to mirror some of the other industries out there. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's wise and it's efficient. Um, yeah. We're almost at the end of our time, and I, I wanted to give you a chance to, if there's something that we haven't talked about that you wanted to bring up today, is is there anything at all? Um, You know, not really. I think we kind of talked about, you know, um, the, the main thing that at least we're focused on, on on the supply chain side and going beyond, you know, just seed to sale and GMP and operational compliance, but really thinking about how do we bring that level of automation, artificial intelligence, and the insights to just make it happen, right? That that you can sit back and the connections between and we make sure that, you know, operators know when they need to make more of something based on those trends and, and connecting that all out. So if you're, you know, if anyone's interested in learning more about that, um, definitely look into Roshi because uh, we don't we don't see anybody solving that problem right now. And if people wanted to contact you or follow you on social media, how would they do that? Yeah, so we're um, on Instagram as well as Facebook. Our Instagram is at Roshi Solutions. Um, and that's, yeah, that's the best place to connect with us um, or our website. It's www.roshi.me. M-E. Celia, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. It's, you know, it's really important that people are able to understand the process because, as you and I both know, it's, it's a, it's a weird world out there in cannabis, and it, if you're approaching it, you, whether you're an operator or a consumer, it's, um, it's confusing as to how things are, are figured out the way our, our weird canna world works. Yeah, exactly. We spent a lot of time you know, doing consulting as well, <laughs> just on the side, sort of through our engagements, because it's all, it's all new, and we've, you know, more and more people are, are entering the space. Well, I want to thank you for getting us up to speed and into, into the new age of cannabis, where we'll be more organized, more grown up, and hopefully have better policies. Absolutely. Well, thanks for having me. Absolutely. And for those of you out there who want to follow Planted on social media, our website is www.plantedwithsarah.com. Um, it is Planted with Sarah on Instagram and Twitter, and it's Planted with Sarah Pion on Facebook. Uh, remember, Planted is two times a month, so tune in next time. We'll have another great guest. And until then... It's getting beautiful out. Enjoy the sun. Stay safe. Stay curious. And I will see you next time. Take care.